0: You're listening to the sermon series on the Letter to the Philippians at Sojourn Church Carlisle. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come, centered on Jesus Christ. Good morning. Good morning. Peace be with you. Amen. Amen. We're uh, going to continue in our study this morning in the book of Philippians. So if you don't mind, if you're able, um, if you're not too tired, uh, could you stand with me? If you're too tired, that's understand. Um, We are outside. So I I, I do understand that. But if you're able, uh, please stand with me. We're going to be reading through Philippians chapter 2. Our verse will come from the first 18 verses therein. From Philippians chapter 2, looking at verses 12 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord spoken to us this morning. It says, therefore, my dear friends, just as you you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing. So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. In the same way, You should also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you. We do thank you. We thank you, God, for this opportunity to hear from you and your spoken word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you be the greatest teacher among us. As always, Father, I ask that you take my little and make much of it to the glory of your name and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I love how this verse starts off specifically in verse 12. Listen to the words that Paul speaks to us this morning. He says this. He says, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, you know, therefore is an encouragement as well as an exhortation to be reminded of the physical embodiment of Jesus Christ. And last week, Pastor Nick did an outstanding job in teaching us and showing us what it meant for Jesus to be an embodied human being and to live, to suffer and to die and to be vindicated by the Father through his resurrection. And here, Paul reminds the Philippian church once again, that as we say here often, that their identity precedes their function. Notice with me the words that he uses he says therefore my beloved my dear friends or other translations can say beloved paul is reminding them from the very beginning that what he's calling them to is not just an aspect he's not what he's calling them to is not outside the grass they're grass as followers of jesus he's reminding them that they are dear friends that they are beloved that they are the church of the living God. And notice what he says immediately after. Not just reminds them of their identity, he reminds them of their function. He says, just as you have always obeyed. When you came in this morning, you should have received or hopefully received a chart that looks something like this. Would love to put this on PowerPoint, but obviously I don't have a screen nor the techn- technological advancements to be able to do that. So I did it old school and just made a copy and, and just shared it with you. But here on this Christ hymn chart, you see actually the beauty and the mystery of what Paul is talking about. On the right, you see Adam. And you see how Adam was made in the image of God. And that Adam exalted himself above God by disobeying God in the Garden of Eden. His disobedience eventually led to death, a spiritual death as well as a physical death. And as a result, he was humbled before God. And that narrative of him being humbled was not just an aspect of him being humble, but even every person who preceded him and came after him throughout human history has also been humbled before God in this depraved state. But thanks be to God, you see in Christ, who was also made in the image of man, not just in the image of God. He humbled himself. He became obedient. And as a result of him becoming obedient, he came obedient even to the point of death. And as a result of his death, now he is the exalted one. He is the one whom we look to. He is the one whom we find our pleasure in. He's the one we find our salvation in. And he's the one whom we worship. Amen. You know, oftentimes in this Christian life, we measure our status based on how, fall, how, how short we fall and how we don't measure up in the ways that we want to measure up in regards to life or our own personal expectations. And this is a good reminder for us that we should measure our status from the understanding and the origin of being spiritually depraved, spiritually dead, and spiritually unresponsive to God. In other words, if there is any good in you, it can't come from you. It can only come from having a relationship with God. And through Christ, our failures, our mistakes, and our sin is no longer an appropriate measurement for our growth and success as a Christian. Rather, Christ has become the measurement. Christ has become the standard. Christ has become the example that God has provided for us to measure ourselves in spiritual maturity. I love how Ephesians 4 puts it this way. Ephesians 4, 12 through 13, it says, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. You see, in our aspects of uh, our relationship and our salvation, there are three aspects to our salvation. There's justification, there's sanctification, and there's glorification. Justification is simply this. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. That at one point in your life, when you turn and look to Jesus and place your faith in him, from that moment on, you have been saved from the penalty of your sins. They are no longer counted against you, amen? Sanctification is a little different. Sanctification is a reality that you are being saved. That not only have you been saved from the penalty of sin, but now and as, as a person living in a, a broken and fallen world, God is saving you from the power of sin. That you see that sin no longer has the, the grip on you that it once had. It no longer controls you because now the power of God within you, the spirit of God through the death, resurrection and second coming of Christ now abides in you. And now you are being sanctified. You are walking with him. But that's not all the good news. The last part is the glorification. So not only you've been saved from the penalty of sin, not only are you being saved now from the power of sin, but eventually you will be saved from the very presence of sin. When, when Christ comes, if, if, if you pass away before Christ comes or when Christ comes uh, with a loud shout and grabbing his church together and taking them home into heaven with him, you are going to be a part of that process as a believer of Christ and as a follower of him. And the beauty of what we're talking about is that the, the very presence of sin will no longer be a reality for you because of what Christ has done. What Paul is calling us to very in the very beginning of verse 12 is a simple reminder that, listen, you are a child of God. He says, therefore, because Christ is exalted and he is the exalted one, therefore, beloved or dear friends, continue to obey as you always have. It's a good reminder for us as a church. And it's a good notice for us that they have always obeyed. Paul isn't asking them to obey the first time. He's saying, you've already obeyed. You've already done this. Now live in it. It shows us from the very beginning that Paul's focus is not on salvation. Paul's focus is on sanctification. So what is sanctification? Let me give you a great definition that I love from Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson says this way. He says, sanctification is a long obedience of believers... That is headed in the same direction, which leads to growth in Christ's likeness. Let me say it one more time. It's a long obedience of of the believer that's headed in the same direction, which leads to growth in Christ's likeness. This is a good reminder for us that we can work out our own salvation because God is already at work within us. Amen? Amen. You see, God takes initiative in everything he creates. God takes initiative in everything that he gives birth to. And because God takes the initiative, we can take what God has given and we can make more of it. Two weeks ago, I mentioned to you that I got a puppy. Some people already asked me, did you get rid of the puppy? No, the puppy's still there, by the grace of God. Actually, I love that the puppy is still there. Two weeks ago, I probably would have gave him away if you gave me enough money. His name is Bear. And mistakenly, I mistakenly said this in my frustration two weeks ago that I was considering to give him away because he was just too much work. And I'm, again, proud to announce that Bear is an active member of our family. He's getting really big, a little too big that I think they might have lied to me about how big he's going to be. In two weeks, he's already doubled in size. So pray for your pastor, please. But but looking at this puppy, looking at Bear, this puppy that we've adopted and brought into our house, I'm reminded of something. I'm reminded of the truth that we can't grow anything. However, we can help or hinder something from growing. You see, God created growth, but in God's gracious design, since the beginning, He allows us to participate in the world and in the growth that he has created. This is not anything new with God. God has done this from the very, very beginning. This is God's world. And it works the way it works in the way in which he asked it and he's called it to work and the way that he's made it to work. And we acknowledge that we control very few things in this life. But in the end. So much that we think we control, we really don't. And even though God is sovereign, we acknowledge that we as humans also have a responsibility. And we must live within this tension of the the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We must live in the tension that God created life, but he has given us the responsibility to live. We must live with an attention that God has breathed his breath into the lungs of man, but we have the responsibility of living and and, and participating in this world as one who has a living soul. We have to live with an attention that God constructed the origins of Eden. But we have the responsibility through our parents, Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and to multiply within the context that he has already created. So here's the question that we have to ask ourselves. How should we live within this tension? How should we live within this tension of God's sovereignty and our responsibility? Between God's created order and God calling us to make much within that creative, creative order. How do we live within that tension? Look with me in verse 12, because Paul gives us the answer. He says, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed. So now, not only in my presence, but more in my, more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. So see what you see what Paul is saying here. He's saying that the way that we respond to this God-ordained tension between his sovereignty and our responsibility is to work out our own salvation. Now, notice what he says here. We are not to work for our salvation, but we're to work out our salvation. We, We must work out what God has given us. We must work it out. We must massage it. We must take what God has given us, the salvation he's given us. And by the means he has ordained for us to work it out, we must work it out through the grace that he provides. Like it or not, sanctification is a slow process. Actually, if I'm honest with everybody and even myself, it's a messy process, amen? And God has called the Christian to the day-in, day-out process of growing in Christ-likeness. It doesn't always look pretty. It doesn't always feel good. It all doesn't always look good. But it's what God has called us to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean, this, this fear of God or this fear and trembling aspect? What does that mean? It simply means this. It is an awareness of God that results in a healthy fear of not offending him. It's an awareness of God that results in a healthy fear of not offending him. It is a righteous awe and respect of God as our creator. In other words, it simply means this. It it simply means just to take God seriously. To take God seriously. And it's the attitude which Christians are to pursue our sanctification. This is the attitude how we work out our salvation, not work for our salvation, but work it out. The way that we work it out is with this attitude of fear and trembling, taking God seriously at his word and understanding that he is able to make much more from us than we can make apart from him or independent from him. We ought to take God seriously in every aspect of our lives. And the reason of this is simply found in Genesis chapter 3. You remember Genesis chapter 3, how he has taken, God took the initiative on our behalf of pursuing us in our sin and our rebellion. In Genesis 3, we see the beauty of God pursuing us. After Adam and Eve Eve sinned, we see how God has graciously pursued them in their waywardness. We see how he graciously clothed them in their nakedness. And we also see how he graciously provided for them despite their disobedience. We have to be reminded, church, that God always takes the initiative. And because God always takes the initiative, we have to follow the initiative that he has started. Because he has a purpose in what he does in all things. I'm reminded of 2 Peter 1, verse 3, that simply says this. It reminds us that we have everything that we need in life and godliness in Christ Jesus. Peter writes it this way in 2 Peter 1, 3. He says, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and his own goodness. So let's put a pause button right here because I know some of you guys may not be with me right now and that's okay. So let's be real. Let's, let's be honest. How can we really do this? I hear someone saying right now, Pastor James, if you only knew my heart, you understand that my life has been a roller coaster. Some days are good, a lot of days are bad. And to be honest, I'm, I'm even struggling to listen to you right now. <laughs> I'm easily distracted, I'm too tired to pay attention to what you're saying. Some days I joyfully submit to God's will, and other day, days it's a war that I'm constantly losing. I'm burnt out, I'm complacent, and I'm exhausted. So what happens when you're too tired or you're too exhausted or you're too complacent to participate in working out your salvation? What happens in that situation? Is God still doing a good work in me even when I'm not able to work out my salvation with fear and trembling of him? Look with me in verse 13 because Paul provides the answer there. He says, Starting at verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed. So now, not only in my presence, but more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Let that sink in for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. I'm going to share with you a little prayer that I've been praying for our church lately as a result of reading this verse and just understanding the complexities of what Paul is bringing here. This week, I've been praying this prayer. It says, Lord, you are working through us. You are working through our obedience and our desires, even when we don't see it or fully comprehend it. And Lord, may you rekindle in us. Lord, may you reignite in us a passion for ordinary obedience. Day-to-day, following after. Day-to-day, submitting to. -to Day-to-day, following the pattern and the life of King Jesus. Church, don't get bored with ordinary obedience. Don't get bored with reading your word. Don't get bored with saying prayers with your family and reading Bible stories with your children at night. Don't get bored for praying for those in your family who don't know Jesus. Don't get bored through ordinary obedience because ordinary obedience is what God uses to work out your salvation. It's what God uses to continue to allow his kingdom to thrive. I have to admit during quarantine, There's a lot of ordinary things that I normally do that I just haven't done. I haven't taken the time at night to kiss my my babies goodnight and read them a Bible story every night. I have not been perfect in that. I haven't been perfect about thinking about praying for and serving my family in the best way that I should. But God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him, according to um, uh, John Piper, And as we learn to be satisfied in him, our ordinary obedience, the ordinary things that we do are monumental in the kingdom of God. It's monumental. And it's what God uses to honor himself in our lives. Ordinary obedience. Not climbing up a mountain. Not doing drastic thing and having great faith. But the ordinary things of life is what God uses to the glory of his name. Here's the answer to that question. Can you still be used by God even if you don't, you're burnt out? Can you still be used by God if you're complacent? Can you still be used by God if you're exhausted? And the answer is yes. Hear this answer. Beloved child of the most high God, the son of or The son and or daughter of the king of kings and the lords of lords. If you are a son of the da- or daughter of the king of kings or the lord of lords, listen to what I'm saying to you right now. Despite your weakness, despite your frailty, despite your inaptitude, God is at work in you. He's at work in you. He doesn't need you to be strong. He needs you to be dependent upon him. He doesn't need you to be intelligent and smart. He needs you to gain wisdom from his word and apply that wisdom in your life that brings much gospel fruit to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of Lords. Lord. He doesn't need you to be big because he's already big. It's a good reminder for us that God is at work in the deepest levels of our lives. And we work because God works And underneath all work is God's work. Love what D.A. Carson says about this. He says this, these words. He says, God is not merely, excuse me, God is not working merely to strengthen us in our willingness and acting. Paul's language is stronger than that. God himself is working in us to both will and to act. He works in us at the level of our wills and at the level of our doing. But far from this being a, this, this incentive to press on, Paul insists that this is an incentive. Assured as we are that God works in this way in his people. We should be all the more strongly resolved to live and to act in ways that please our maker. I love what Psalm 127.1 says, it puts it this way. It says, unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor, labor in vain. I love what 1 Corinthians 15.10 says about it. Paul writes these words, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Colossians 3, 129 says it this way, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Notice how God fulfills his purpose in us by his mighty power. You see, God is working in us for his good pleasure. And although the believer is responsible to work, the Lord produces the good works and the spiritual fruit fruit in the lives of the believer. His work is accomplished because he works in us through his indwelling spirit. So what does this look like? What does this look like practically for God to be at work in us? See, we have a lot of analogies around even here that we can look at. See, God isn't just calling you to be totally dependent Right. Imagine. A car, these cars going up and down the street. God isn't saying, hey, I'm going to be the car and you be the driver. You jump in, you push the pedal, you steer the wheel. I have all the power, you have all the direction. (laughs) He's not calling us to that type of understanding of working out our salvation. Total dependence upon him in that way. He's not calling us to just be independent. We see this even as people walking up and down the street. They're using their own power. They're going up and down the street, walking where they want to go under their own power that God has given them, the leg strength that God has given them, the mind to know where to go. He's not just calling us to that. Let me tell you what God is calling us to. He's calling us to interdependence. And what I mean by that is this. It's not just you getting a car and you pushing a pedal and you telling God where to go. It's not just Jesus takes the wheel theology. That, that's not biblical totally. <laughs> There's some truth to that, but not total biblical truth to that. He's not telling you just to go out and walk and just kind of do it on your own. You know what God is calling us to? God is calling us to interdependence. And you know what interdependence looks like? It looks like you getting on a bike and riding. <laughs> It looks like you getting on a bike and you exert energy. And what does the bike do? The bike the bike takes the energy that you exert, and what does it do? It intensifies. It it multiplies. It makes much more than the effort that you're putting in, and it gives you greater results as a result. God is calling us to interdependence with Him. He's not calling you just to look at Him and solve every single problem that this world has to offer. You have to be involved in some ways. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a directive. That is a, a, a specific call that he's calling us to. He's not calling you to live your life on your own and figure it out by yourself. But what God is calling you to do is to go along with him and see his power uh, magnified and glorified through the efforts that you provide. There is an interdependence that God desires for us as a believer. That yes, we do exert effort, but in knowing that that effort is multiplied and blessed by the one you live in God. And even though our efforts are not enough, he makes them enough by his grace and for his glory and for our good, amen? It's a good reminder for us as a church that you aren't alone, Christian. God is at work in you and he's accomplishing his good purpose through you. Because God energizes both your desire as well as your actions. And the reason why God does all this is so that he can get all the glory. He can get the glory. It's like you going to a Beyonce concert, wanting to go see Queen Bee. And if anybody don't, I'm not cussing when I say that. That's her nickname when I say that. Queen Bee. And you go to the concert knowing that tickets are about $500 a, 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 a ticket. And you go up to the teller with 20 bucks saying, hey, can I go see Beyonce? <laughs> what do you think they're going to do? They're going to probably laugh at you, right, and send you home. But not so with God, right? God take, says, you know what? Give me your 20 and you can, go, you can go in. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. What you've given me is not sufficient enough, but I'm going to accept what you have given me, and I'm going to allow you to partake in the beauty And I'm going to allow you to take in the desires that you have, not because you are so good, but because I, as your creator, am so good. God's good pleasure means that God wants Christians to do what satisfies him. He wants us to live our life in a certain way that pleases and honors him. And in verse 14, we see an aspect and we start to see the beauty of what it means. to to live a life of good pleasure before God. Look with me in verse 14, it says this. It says, do everything without grumbling and arguing. Verse 15, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. Notice that verse 14, he says, do everything not most things, not some things, not select things. He says, do everything. It is not suggested. It is not implied. It is mandated from Paul through the authority of the Holy Spirit that we must do everything without grumbling and arguing. Paul is very, very strict on everything in regards to language. Ephesians four twenty nine puts it this way. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 5 4 about talk or language. He says, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or crude joking, which is out of character, but rather thanksgiving. See, why would Paul mention this temptation to grumble and to argue? I mean, Paul, you just told us that we are dear friends. You've told us that we've always obeyed. You told us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You told us that it is God who is working in us, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. So, Paul, after giving all of all of that good stuff to us, why would you turn? Why would you flip the script? Why would you now mention the temptation to grumble and to argue? Let me give you three reasons why Paul does this. Number one, because Christian perseverance is difficult. Working out your salvation is difficult. It's hard work. Discipleship isn't an easy road. It is like following God up a one-way street going the wrong way. It is impossible to do apart from God. Pursuing holiness, giving generously, practicing hospitality. Loving one's spouse, loving one's kids selflessly, sharing the gospel, obeying your parents. These are impossibilities apart from the saving grace of God. Amen. But remember the context. Remember that the Philippian church had both internal strife as well as external pressures. And complaining is always a temptation for anyone in a local church because people often can't live up to the expectation of others. Paul understands and he remembers not just the context of that he's writing, he also remembers the culture. He remembers that they have a temptation to complain because often people can't live up to the expectations that you place before them. And as a result, you're bound to be disappointed at some point. Let me ask you that question. How do you respond to disappointment? Or how will you respond to disappointment? I love this because it's a good reminder for us that there is a stark difference between grumbling and arguing and lamenting and longing. God is not calling us not to be upset. Not to be disgruntled or not to work against the brokenness experience within this broken world. But he's not he's not calling us to complacency, but to Christ's likeness. You see, this aspect of grumbling, it's an emotional rejection of God. It's an emotional rejection of God's sovereignty and his goodness in one's life. This aspect of arguing or disputing it involves. Questioning or criticizing—that's directly—that's directly directly uh, negatively—that's directed negatively towards God. It is an attitude that we possess of not getting our way. (laughs) Imagine with me—I'm not going to tell you which which child—but I saw this very clearly this week with one of my children. My wife and I—I don't even know what day it was—two or three days ago, we decided to go to an ice cream parlor that we always wanted to go to. And we decided to do this. We decided to take them to get ice cream for dinner. Can you imagine? No dinner, ice cream. That's what we're doing. Not just getting ice cream, but you can get a triple scoop of your favorite ice cream, each one of you. Because I'm going to fill them up with sugar so I can take them home to go to bed. Good idea, Dad, right? No, that's a horrible idea. I take my kids to ice Every single one orders what they want. Two supermans, one, we'll call it white mint chocolate. I don't even know what it was, but it was something delicious. And all three of them are licking away, having a good time, enjoying their ice creams. They're all, it's a glorious day. My, even my dog is acting good at this time. My, dog, my puppy, he's doing great. Bear's doing great. Everybody's happy. And then one of my kids look at the other kid with this triple scooped ice cream of, her, of the child's favorite ice cream. And she, uh, the child looks at the sibling and says, I want your ice cream. Mine ain't good enough. She didn't, the person didn't say it like that, but they said it's something similar to that. You see, grumbling is a negative response. It's, it's, it's having a triple scoop ice cream of your favorite ice cream at your favorite ice cream parlor, having ice cream, having ice cream for dinner and yet grumbling about the one thing you can't have. And it's not just a grumbling towards one another. It's ultimately a grumbling towards God himself. That I'm mad at you, God. I got 95, I got five, I, got, I have 95 great things going on in my life. But this one 5%, God, this one 5%, you better get it right to make me 100% happy. And if you don't, I'm mad at you about it. Now, listen to me, church. I'm not saying that there's no room to be frustrated and mad with God. I'm not saying that. You need to bring your longing and you need to bring your laments to him. But how dare us, as children who have been birthed by the initiation of God, our creator, who has done everything on our behalf, who has saved us, who has sanctified us, who is sustaining us, and who eventually will bring us into his ultimate glory, how dare us look at him and say, if everything in my life is not how I want it to be, you're not good. You're not worthy of my praise. You're not worthy of me looking and honoring you because everything in my life doesn't look like the way I want it to look like. How dare us to have the audacity to look at God in this way? This is why Paul is so heavy about what he's saying here. Do everything without grumbling. Do everything without arguing. He's not, again, he's not calling you not to be upset. He's not telling you not to be, to, to, to mourn and to long for better within this world. But he's saying, how dare you to allow the char- your circumstance to define the character and nature of your God? Your circumstances should not dictate who God is both in the ways and when everything is going well and everything is going right and we're inside in air conditioning and we're singing our songs and we got t- three times as many people on this lawn inside and also when everything is going wrong. God can't be good because your life is good because guess what? This life is broken and at some point there's, a ba- there's something bad that's gonna happen in your life. So is God bad because something bad happened in your life? No, he's not. And God can't be be bad just because everything, you're going through a hard season and it's a struggle. You can't allow the character of God to be defined when everything is going good. And you cannot allow the character of God to be defined when everything is going bad. God's character stands alone. And he's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of us following him despite life circumstances. Would you pray with me? Father, we do love you and praise you. You're a good God and good king. Pray that you would give us greater opportunity to not just see your goodness, but to embrace it. We praise you for you have taken an initiative in our lives. You've given us salvation and you called us to work alongside you to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. God, may we do that even now. In Jesus name. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, junior lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.